0: Alright, well tonight we are here, um, actually um, about 5 o'clock on Thursday, what happened? Um, for those of you here, we're, we're here Tuesday and you're watching this online and you notice that I have a completely um, different wardrobe on. Um, we weren't able to capture the video there, so what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to um, talk right into the um, the monitor that you got there. So we want to thank Thank you so much for those who listen online, for those of you who um, watch on the Vimeo and on YouTube, especially those that we've been getting emails from, from the military all over the world. um, Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for what you do, and uh, we absolutely are praying for you. And so tonight we are going to be talking about the resurrection. So we've gone through Journey 180. We've gone from the very beginning, so we understand that from the very beginning, Uh, There was God and God created. So we have a personal God. And then at some point, man decided to act independently of God's plan for his life. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. And from that moment on, we have this thread that goes throughout time leading up to the cross. And whether you're on the backside of the cross pointing to it or you're where we're at today, 2,000 years removed, everybody points to the cross. And so tonight, um, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. Last week, we talked about the last week of Jesus's life and and how Jesus could go from hallelujah on that Palm Sunday morning to crucify him in just five days. What what happened in the life of of Jesus, what happened in the lives of those who were cheering His name for them to put Him on a cross, which we understand in Jewish um, culture is the most detestable form of punishment you could ever imagine. The Bible's pretty clear that the resurrection is the key moment. The Bible was written about Jesus Christ. The four Gospels point to the moment of the cross and ultimately, three days later, the resurrection. As we look into history, I want to read a couple quotes from you. H.G. Wells once said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Whether they're Christian historians or, for the most part, mainstream historians, to a man, to a woman, they will all say that Jesus is the most dominant figure in the history of the world. And as we've talked about how the Bible points to the cross, so does history. And so this one moment that we talked about last week is Jesus stands... Side by side, Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asks the the critical question that everybody needs to answer. What am I to do with this man that they call Jesus? And we see at this one moment in time, as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jewish leaders are pleading with Pilate to crucify Jesus, and Pilate is trying to find a way out we see the response of the Jewish people. And we see the fact that the Messiah that they thought they were getting was not the Messiah that Jesus turned out to be. And the sad fact is, the Messiah that most people wanted was Barabbas. And so today, I want to look at the idea of the crucifixion. We're going to go from the cross and we're going to fast forward to the resurrection and try to understand the whole idea of the empty tomb and understand who is Jesus because in order to understand our faith, we've got to understand who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis once said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left this open to us and he did not intend to do so. For those who say Jesus was a great teacher and he was a great man, but I just can't buy that he's the son of God. I just can't buy this idea that a dead man rose from the grave that Easter morning. As C.S. Lewis so Perfectly put, you can't marry those two. You can't say Jesus was a great moral teacher, but then say he lied about who he was. And Jesus clearly said that he was the Son of God. So you're either left with Jesus is a liar, and if Jesus is a liar, then we honestly shouldn't even be here. If Jesus was a lunatic then we have nothing to worship. But if we honestly look at the facts that are laid out in the Bible and that are laid out in history, I think we'll come to a conclusion that Jesus wasn't a liar. He wasn't a lunatic, but he was who he says he was. He was the Son of God. And he is Lord. And if he is Lord, then that puts a decision on our end. Are we going to serve him? Are we going to turn our lives over to him as Lord Or are we going to continue to walk the other way? So tonight, wherever you're at, open your Bibles to John chapter 19. And we'll go back just as Jesus gives up his life. John chapter 38. Jesus is now dead. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. We see that in John chapter 3. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this passage gives us some incredible clues as to what happened after the cross and it gives us incredible evidence as we point to the empty tomb and so the first thing is we look at proofs for the idea that that the bible is accurate in saying that the empty tomb was in fact empty we need to look at this first passage joseph of arimathea and nicodemus both jewish leaders both prominent figures in jewish society everybody in jerusalem would have known these two figures Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for his body. Pilate granted this wish. So Joseph and Nicodemus took the body off the cross, wrapped it, Applied spices and the reason why they would apply spices and not only to the body But they would leave spices as we see in the other gospels The women would later come and add spices to the scene Was that was just basically to cover the smell of the decay that was about to happen over the next few weeks And so they took jesus and instead and here's the key thing We need to pay attention to because remember according to rome according to jewish the jewish leaders jesus was a criminal You don't crucify innocent people. You're not supposed to. So Jesus was a criminal. And what they would do with criminals, they would take them off the cross and they would throw them into unmarked graves. For those of you who have seen pictures of the Holocaust and pictures of the death camps and seeing these soldiers just grabbing these these lifeless Jewish bodies and tossing them into these massive graves... The horrific sight. Well, this is exactly what happened 2,000 years prior. But the Bible doesn't indicate that Jesus was thrown or tossed away like a common criminal. Instead, he was placed, not thrown, but he was placed into a rich man's tomb. Why is that important to understand? Because three days later, when Jesus would rise, and the disciples eventually caught on to the fact that Jesus rose again, and they were running throughout town yelling, saying, Jesus has risen. And, and the basis of Christian um, belief and the foundation of our faith is the fact that we serve and believe and worship a risen God. It is critical that he actually rose. And so as this movement is starting, if Jesus didn't really rise, all the opponents, the Jewish leaders, the Romans, or whoever was against the movement called the way, which in turn would be called Christianity, all they had to do was go to the tomb. And if Jesus hadn't rose, all they had to do was produce a body. Now, this would have been hard if Jesus, like a common criminal, would have just been tossed into a mass grave and burned because then the disciples could have said whatever they wanted and there was no proof but the fact that he was placed into a a rich man's tomb where everyone knew its location is critical for us to understand why'd they have to take the body off the cross so quick It says it's because it was the day of preparation. Now, we need to understand what the day of preparation means. Each week before the Sabbath, Jewish people would prepare for the Sabbath. So if the Sabbath was on a Saturday, Friday would be the day of preparation where they would get all their work done, get all their buying done, because on Saturday... According to custom, they were not allowed to work, they were not allowed to buy, and if you didn't take care of the necessary actions on the day of preparation, you would be sorry on the Sabbath. So Jesus was taken off the cross on the day of preparation before the Sabbath. Now, which Sabbath was it? And we'll get to that later on in the discussion, because Tuesday night, a couple nights ago, someone came up with a very good question about um, the timing of Jesus' death, and was it actually... On Good Friday. So we'll get to that towards the end. But let's keep reading. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have put him. So here we have early in the morning. And as you'll read in the other Gospels, it was before before, um, light came. So it was in the dark. Mary gets to the tomb and realizes that there's no body there. And so she runs back to the disciples. And then we pick up the story as the three, Mary and the two disciples, Peter... And the one in whom Jesus loved. And I love the fact that, that John, who wrote this, was referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I just love that about John. And so they start running for the tomb. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Verse 4. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Another pointless thing. Fact, but I love the fact that John pointed out the fact that he was faster than Peter. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, whom reached the tomb first, awesome, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So we see three characters here. The first one I want to talk about is John. John, the writer of this gospel. John, one of the disciples, the faster of the two, got to the tomb first. He looked in. He did not go in, but he looked in. And what does it say? He believed. The minute he saw the empty tomb, John believed. Now, many people who are listening to this You might be one of those. You you might be saying, you know what? I I believe, I absolutely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible says, "Amen. amen. Amen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So John reacted to the empty tomb with belief. Now the empty tomb, we see in Isaiah 53, We see the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is a great prophecy about what would happen at this time. And we'll get back to Isaiah 53 because because it's important to understand. But here we have John, looks in, believes that Jesus rose. Even though, as he later put, they still didn't, the disciples still didn't understand why Jesus had to rise. And then we have the second character, Peter. Peter gets there, he goes into the tomb, and he comes out. Doesn't say he believed. In fact, if you go to Luke chapter 24, 12, Peter says he was wondering to himself what had happened. So John believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Peter, more of the skeptic, was trying to figure out what had happened, And then one of the saddest moments in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. For many people listening to this or reading this story, many people who show up on Easter morning, some of them believe, but then they go back to where they were. Some of them come to Easter Because that's what you do. And they they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then they also leave. But then we get to the third person. And it's Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white. Seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? And listen to what she says. They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had seen these things. So here we have three characters at the tomb that early that morning. One who believed and left and went on with life as normal, seemingly unimpacted by the gravity of the moment. Another who was a skeptic, who didn't know what happened, but he also left. But then we get to Mary, who I would call the broken. Now, you need to understand, as the disciples, as the followers, which included many women, Now, Jesus had more than 12 followers. He had men and women who followed him from place to place. Some have known him for his entire life. Some were related to him. But most of them had followed him for at least a year, two, maybe three. They've listened to every message that he preached. They saw him during the down times. They joked with him. They played games. So often we see Jesus depicted in movies walking at three-quarters speed, never blinking, some weird character that's not really lifelike. But Jesus was very alive. Jesus told jokes. He laughed. He was normal. Jesus was human. And these people lived with him. They loved him. And imagine the scene, the helplessness, the guilt As Jesus gets arrested and as you desert, imagine Peter who actually denied Jesus. Imagine watching from a distance as Jesus gets placed in front of Pilate. As people are yelling for the death of Jesus, the death of your son, the death of your brother, the death of your friend. Imagine that pain. The fear that maybe you're next. Imagine watching Jesus carry the cross down the Via Dolorosa. Remember the movie Passion of the Christ. Remember the pain. Imagine those who were there at the cross. Now, John and Mary, two of the three, were there at the cross looking up to Jesus, seeing the blood coming off of his unrecognizable body. Imagine the pain of that moment as you watch as Jesus gives up his life. Imagine the hopelessness as you walk down the hill. What's next? Maybe I'm gonna die too. I've just lost my friend. For some, my brother. For some, my son. So we feel the brokenness of Mary as she's crying outside the tomb. Just pleading, oh God, please just let me find the body so I can give him a proper burial. So I can put him back away So I can lay him to rest. And then imagine that moment as Jesus is standing there. And he calls out her name, Mary. A moment that Peter and John missed because they left. A moment that so many of us miss because we are so impatient that we never wait for Jesus to move. We leave. But Mary stayed. And because she stayed, she didn't believe, but she stayed. And Jesus met her exactly where she is. Jesus will meet you exactly where you're at, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter what baggage you have, no matter what doubts you carry. Jesus will meet you even if you don't believe. But you just got to be there. Jesus looks into her face and says, Mary, what a moment in the life of a human being. Remember that it wasn't Peter. It wasn't John. It wasn't Nicodemus. It wasn't anybody who the world might think Jesus would first appear to. It wasn't even his own mother. It was Mary Magdalene who had enough courage to stay. She was the first to see the risen Savior. So what about this empty tomb? How as Christians can we look at a skeptical world and go, yeah, the tomb was empty. And so many of us just go and say, the tomb is empty. Why? Because the Bible says so. And so many skeptics look at us and go, that's circular reasoning. You can't prove the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. So what, what are some of the evidences that historians would look at to actually prove that something is legitimate. Well, the first thing we need to understand is the Bible, yes, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But let's remove all that. Let's say, let's just treat the Bible as a historical document. Yes, we know it's inspired. Yes, we know it's inerrant. But let's just treat it as a historical document. And if we would treat this book as a historical document, just like we would treat the histories of Josephus, the histories and annals of Tacitus or Suetonius or Eusebius, any of these great historians, you would come to find that the Bible passes the test of historicity. It passes the test of authenticity. What's one of the first evidences? Well, the first evidence is what we've already talked about. Jesus was not buried in a tomb that no one knew about. He wasn't buried in some pasture. He was buried in something akin to Arlington National Cemetery. Take this for example. What if someone came to you and said, you know what? Yes, John F. Kennedy died. But did you know that he rose from the dead? He rose from the dead three days later. That bullet could not keep him down, and John F. Kennedy appeared to his mother, and he appeared to his to his um, cabinet, and then he appeared to about five hundred other people, and he walked throughout the United States for about forty days, and then he ascended into heaven. What's the first thing someone would do? Let's go to his grave. Here's his body. And that happened 50 years ago. Imagine as the early church started going, and as Peter stood as he did in Acts chapter 3, and he sees he started preaching the apostolic message, which is Jesus was crucified. And they would often say, and you guys are witnesses of this, Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. And you were witnesses of this. In fact, in one case, Peter said, I can take you to David's tomb. We all know where that's it. But Jesus' tomb is empty. And this is according to scriptures. And then Peter in the early church would always call people into repentance. And God would add daily to the numbers of those who believe. If the body was in the tomb that everybody knew where that tomb was, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, how could Christianity possibly have taken lift? How could it have possibly have started? Wouldn't that have been the first thing the Pharisees would have gone after? And remember this, as someone brought up Tuesday night, when the guards came back to the Jewish leaders and said, The body is not there. They concocted the story that the body was stolen. Why would they have to make up a story if the body was still there? Notice they didn't say, oh, just go tell people that the disciples are drunk. The body's still there. No, they had to tell people something because people knew the tomb was empty. The early audience, the early readers of Scripture knew the tomb was empty. So the enemies of God had to find a different reason why it was empty. The empty tomb is independently reported in various early sources. All four Gospels talk about it. We see Paul referencing it in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul references an earlier source than the Gospels. We see extra biblical historians referencing the fact that the early church and people believed that the tomb was empty. In fact, there's not one single source historically that says, oh, that was all a lie. The tomb was filled. That was just a myth. You won't find that in history. Another evidence was who was the one that found the tomb? It was the women. Now John picks up the story with Mary Magdalene, but, but if we put all the gospels together, we find out that Mary and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and another woman went to the tomb before, and that they had discovered that the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene ran back and went and got Peter and John. And at that time, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other woman had left the scene. But women were the first ones that found the tomb empty. Why is that important? Because in Jewish culture and in Roman culture, women were absolutely worthless as far as a witness In fact, in in Roman and Jewish law, you could throw out the testimony of a woman. So if the disciples and the early church made up the fact that the tomb was empty at a later date, just to try to prove that Jesus was more than a man, if they had made that up, why would you make up a story and start it with something that no one would accept? If this story of the empty tomb was a made-up story, it would have been men that found the tomb. And it wouldn't have been his disciples. It it would have been Jewish leaders or someone. But here we have women. Why? Why use women? Well, the reason is because women were the ones that found them. It's true because that's how it happened. And the Bible tells things the way it is even if it's not popular. So the tomb was discovered by women. The earliest Jewish response to the disciples presupposes the empty tomb. Again, no one argued with the empty tomb. Again, evidence that the tomb was empty. The second argument for an empty tomb... Was that various individuals and groups on different occasions and under varying circumstances experienced appearances of Jesus alive? You see, we just read in John that Jesus saw Mary. Mary was the first resurrection appearance. But Jesus also appeared in front of others, in front of the Twelve. In fact, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look what it says. And by the way, if anyone ever asks, well, what is the gospel? All you have to do is say, look up 1 Corinthians 15. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is the gospel. The gospel means good news. And this is what it says. Now, brothers and sisters, and this is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then watch this. And then he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, James was his brother. And at last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Jesus appeared to multiple, multiple people, multiple witnesses, individuals and groups. Now, some people would say, well, these people were just hallucinating. Well, psychologists will tell you that yes, one person could concoct a vision, a group of people can't have a group of hallucination of the same thing. The evidence is strong that Jesus rose as the Bible says he did. The first disciples came sincerely to believe in Jesus' resurrection despite every predisposition to the contrary. Remember, when Jesus died, where were his disciples? According to scriptures, they had scattered, which fulfilled prophecy, by the way. No one, the disciples, thought that Jesus would have a bodily resurrection. In fact, no one in Jewish culture thought even the Messiah. Because remember, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but they weren't even expecting the Messiah to have a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection, and the Pharisees, even though they believed in a resurrection, they believed in a spiritual resurrection, Where the spirit would leave, but the body would remain. No one, no one was anticipating a bodily resurrection, including the disciples. So if Jesus didn't, in fact, actually rise bodily, where would that story come from? Why would the disciples, again, have women see it, but then again, create something that no one was expecting the Messiah to even do? Unless it really happened. And remember the disciples and the followers of Jesus. Almost all of them went to their death. Believing. That Jesus. Died on the cross. Was buried and he rose again. Now. No one's going to die for a lie. Eventually. As the sword is to the throat, or the sword is to your family's throat, if you made up a story, eventually you're going to go, I was just kidding. I was just, I was just kidding. Now some would say, well, that doesn't make sense because we know after 9-11 and so many other instances that that people are willing to die for something that's not true. The terrorists flew planes into a building and and died for a jihad that... That we believe is not true. But here's the thing. The terrorists, they believed it was true. And so they were willing to die for it. Well, then someone would say, well, then how is that different than the disciples who also believed it was true? Here's the difference. The terrorists or, or people who are willing to die for a false god believe it But they were not witnesses to it. They believe it earnestly. And so yes, they're willing to die. But here the disciples are different. They didn't believe it because they heard it passed down from generations or because it was written in a book. Their source of belief is that they actually saw it with their own eyes. That they actually saw it with their own eyes that Jesus rose from the dead. So they knew the truth. There was no middle ground with the disciples. There was no, I just have faith and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They knew it because they saw it. Or they were lying because they didn't see it. There's no middle ground in there for the disciples. And yet none of them, even though many of them experienced the most horrific death you could possibly imagine, The historian, the Roman historian Tacitus, who hated the Christians, would go on to describe how Christians would die. And he would say that, and he would say it with a, just, you could see a a, a smile within the words. That they would be impaled. That tar would be poured on them. And they would use the burning Christians as lights for the streets at night. They would be fed to the lions, that they would be sodden too. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, who we believe is Paul, also noted in Hebrews 11 that people were sodden too, that they were thrown to the lions, um, that they were crucified, that they were beheaded. They used to strap bodies onto the, the living Christians and allow them to slowly succumb to the death that was strapped to them. Would you go through that? Would you watch your daughter? Your wife goes through that if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that what you were professing was a lie? Another evidence is the fact that as we look at the Gospels and how they describe the resurrection, we don't see any indication of legendary writing. Of myth. And what I mean by that is anytime for those who have seen the Avengers, you can see just this grandiose type mythical. When you look at the ancient history of like the Thor's of the world, and you see this grandiose, mythical. But here with the gospels, you don't see that. You see it, matter-of-fact. Early in the morning, the stone was rolled away, the women witnessed it, there were two angels. Jesus met face to face. Nothing that screams to be an exaggeration. However, here's what an exaggeration would sound like. And this comes from the Gospel of Peter, which is a false document. It was written about 200 years after the fact. Here's how this writer describes the resurrection, who he obviously did not witness. Early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to see the sealed tomb. But during the night before, the Lord's day dawned as the soldiers were keeping guard two by two in every watch. There came a great sound from the sky and they saw the heavens opened And two men descend shining with a great light and they drew near to the tomb. The tomb which had been set on the door rolled away by itself and moved to one side and the tomb was opened and both the young men were in it. Now when these soldiers saw that they woke up the centurion and the elders for they also were keeping watch. While they were yelling, yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw three men come out of the tomb, two of them sustaining the other one. And a cross, get this, a cross followed them. The heads of the two they saw had heads that reached up to the heavens. So out of the tomb, these huge heads that reached up to the heavens, that were heads that were bigger than mountains, But the head of him that was led by them, it went beyond heaven. And they heard a voice out of the heaven saying, Have you preached unto them that sleep? The answer that was heard from the cross was, Yes. That is an example of the resurrection story being taken to a whole nother level. An example of what a resurrection would sound like if it was made up by men. William Lane Craig, one of the great apologists, uses this as an example saying, in, in the Gospels, we don't see this. We see it just told just as it is, as if, as if a journalist was sitting there taking notes. No embellishments. If the women found the tomb, so be it. The women found the tomb. If the disciples, get this, the future leaders of the church, if the disciples walked away, that's what happened. Thomas doubted, that's what happened. If you're going to write the story and make it up, I'm assuming at one point Thomas would have went, hey, why do I have to doubt? Unless it really happened. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful. It's compelling. You can't run away from it. I want to challenge you wherever you're at. Search for yourself. Don't just believe me. Don't ever believe somebody who's just talking to you unless you go to the Word of God. But research it yourself. That's the great thing about Christianity, is we are actually told to, to research, to make sure it's true. Tuesday night, a couple questions were brought up. One of them was, well, what are some of the prophecies? We know that the resurrection and the crucifixion fulfilled many prophecies in the Old Testament, and we understand that over 400 prophecies were given about Jesus Christ from his birth to his life, his death and his resurrection, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. And we walked through a couple of weeks ago just the, the impossibility of any human being able to fulfill even just 30 of these, let alone all of them. We see evidence, Isaiah chapter 53, we see it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was hung on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Looked up as pierced, Zechariah 12:10. A stone that was rejected, Psalm 118-22. He became the chief cornerstone, Psalm also in Psalm 118. The prophet was raised up, Deuteronomy 18:15. He was lifted high, Isaiah 6, 1. And he's seated at God's right hand. Now, yes, some of you would look into the the prophecies in the Old Testament that dealt specifically with the crucifixion and the resurrection and go, wow, those seem vague. Because we have other prophecies that say, well, Jesus is going to be, or the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, that's pretty... It's pretty cut and dry. Or, or he's going to ride in on a donkey. Well, that, that's pretty cut and dry. But we look at the, the prophecies of the, the crucifixion. And why would they seem vague? Well, here's a couple reasons. The crucifixion wasn't even invented as a form of death when these prophecies were written. The resurrection, why was that veiled? Why was that sort of written more as a riddle? Well, here's why. The prophecies about the resurrection were not to point people towards the fact that the Messiah at some point would be resurrected. They were written more as a riddle so after the fact, you can look back and go, oh yeah, that absolutely makes sense. An example of that would be if you go to Judges chapter 14 and we see this riddle that that Samson talks about. Out of the eater, and this has nothing to do with the resurrection, but listen to this. Out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. Now when we look at that before an event we'd go what on earth does that mean out of the eater comes something to eat and out of the strong comes something sweet. Well then when we look after the fact and we go oh there was a there was a, a there was a, a bee nest a hara, a." a a honeycomb area inside a dead lion. Okay, that makes sense. And so when you look at it then, you go, okay, that makes sense. And then now you look back at what was said and goes, oh, that makes sense. And they connect. When we look at these prophecies, when they were originally told, it would be nearly impossible to be able to write a roadmap because a lot of these things weren't even invented. Remember, when these prophecies were told... Rome wasn't, no one knew what Rome was. No one knew what a cross was. No one even knew what Greek was. No one knew any of that. They didn't understand what a Jewish leader, as far as a Pharisee or Sadducee was, because those weren't invented yet. They didn't know any of that. So of course they're going to be veiled. The Bible talks about them. They were mysteries. But after the fact, once the resurrection, once the crucifixion happens, you can now look back at the Old Testament and go, absolutely, absolutely fulfilled prophecy. Over and over and over again, you're going to see fulfilled prophecy. And, and, and people don't necessarily even argue with that. Someone once took Isaiah 53 and wrote it out and laid it in front of about 10 different people and said, what, what is this about? And all of them said, well, th- this has to be about Jesus. Th- th- this is about the resurrection. And when, when they finally said, oh, you realize this was written... Many hundreds of years before Jesus, they were astonished. Because when you look at it after the fact, you go, this could be about no other human in the history of the world than about the man named Jesus. Another question was asked, and if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And we only got a few minutes left, but Matthew chapter 27. And it says this, and it's rather, it's rather interesting And this was after the death of Jesus, or right when the death of Jesus happened. It says in verse 51, Matthew twenty-seven, fifty-one. Actually, we'll start back in 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The body of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They had come out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is an amazing story. This is an amazing fact of what happened The minute Jesus died, there was an earthquake. The temple veil tore from top to bottom, which symbolized now we are connected. We're no longer separated from from God. But then the earthquake caused the tombs to open up. And then eventually these people, these risen saints would come out, which had to have been Old Testament believers in the future Messiah, came out, and walked into the, and people saw this. So remember, the Bible talks about, yes, people saw Jesus' resurrected body, but people also saw these people. Just like people would have seen Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was dead and Jesus brought him to life. And so this story, to answer the question, was very similar to that of Lazarus. It would not have been a glorified body like Jesus had, It would have been a resurrected body that they previously had. And it wasn't all the saints, all the Old Testament believers, but it was a select few that were in Jerusalem. Some believe this was a fulfillment of the valley of bones that we see in Ezekiel. Another question was brought up, and and, and someone came up to me right afterwards and said, I don't understand this. There, there's a passage that talks about that just as Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave. And she did the math and she's all, that doesn't make sense. How can we go from Friday night? Remember, they were taking Jesus off before the next day and then the Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. So before the Sabbath... Jesus's body was off the cross and buried. How do we go from Friday late, somewhere between three and six, probably closer to six, and how do we get the fact that the women discovered the empty tomb and it was still dark out, so it was early Sunday morning? How do we marry that with three days and three nights? That doesn't make sense. And a lot of people over time have said, well, it's... It's risen on the third day, Friday being one, Saturday being two, Sunday being three. But even that explanation doesn't do justice to the fact that Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man. Well, here's the explanation to that. Okay? The Bible doesn't say that Jesus died on Friday. We celebrate Good Friday, but the Bible doesn't indicate that it was actually on a Friday. The reason why tradition over time has said that Jesus died on Good Friday is because it says it happened before the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was always the last day of the week, the seventh day, which would have been a Saturday. And so if it happened on the day of preparation, which the Bible says, then it had to have been on a Friday, right? Not necessarily, because the Bible also talks about other Sabbaths, aside from the Sabbath that happens weekly. There were other Sabbaths called high Sabbaths. And we can see these in Leviticus chapter 23 and other areas in the Bible, where there were special days called the high Sabbath. And so when there was a high Sabbath, and that could happen at any time during the week, not just on a Saturday then for that day, there would also be a preparation day before that. So it is very possible that Jesus could have been put on the cross Wednesday. And then you would get Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and he was risen. Late, most likely, even Saturday night and discovered early Sunday morning. So that is a possibility that the reason why there were two different Sabbaths that are indicated in the Gospels, and it seems to indicate that there were two different time periods, is maybe one was the typical Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, and the other one was a high Sabbath, which means there would have been two Sabbaths that week. There would have been two preparations um, days that week. So that's an explanation. We don't have time to go through that. Um, Some would say that... um, Throughout the last week, we have the, the, the occurrences that happened on a Sunday, Tuesday, or a Monday and Tuesday. But there's nothing that seems to indicate anything happened on Wednesday and Thursday. So some would say that maybe it happened on a Thursday. Um, but here's what we need to understand. That it, that there is definitely ample evidence that it doesn't seem like um, the actual crucifixion happened on what we would know as a Friday. That it had to have happened earlier, if you're going to be able to marry the three days and three three nights. Okay, but there's still there's there's theologians on both sides, and there are people that are arguing both both those. But neither one of those really really take anything away from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All it does is try to pinpoint exactly when was he put on on the cross. Um, there is another um, example. Not only were there Possibly two Sabbaths during that week, but there was a Jewish tradition in Jerusalem during the Passover that there would actually be two Passover celebrations, one for those who lived inside of Jerusalem, and the day before for all those traveling from all the parts of the world that were coming to Jerusalem for this for this Passover feast and so all those that were traveling they would handle all their issues, all their sacrifices. The day before, simply because the temple did not have enough room to do it all the same day. So, that is another evidence that there was probably two not only two different Sabbaths, but two different Passovers. But these are fun topics um, to study. But ultimately, as we close tonight, it all comes down to the cross. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that is the gospel. Jesus died. He was buried, and he rose again, according to the scriptures. He appeared to many witnesses at different times. This was all according to scriptures, according to the prophecies. And we see throughout Acts, which we'll talk about next Tuesday night, how the early church took this message. And by the way, they preach this message at every service. There was no such thing as a sermon series. They preached this message every single service in the early church in the early days. Jesus is Lord. He died. He was buried. He rose again. All this according to scriptures. And then they would call for a moment of repentance. And so my call to you, for those who are listening, is the call that Pilate gave out. What are we to do with this man that we call Jesus? What do you do with the man they call Jesus? Do you believe he was a liar? Do you believe he was a lunatic? Or do you believe he was Lord? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Black or white, American, Afghan, it doesn't matter. Rich or poor male, there is no difference. Remember that the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you made that call? Have you turned your life over to Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged that he is Lord? Have you acknowledged that because of your sin, because you have fallen short, Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of that sin is death. Death means separation. It means that when we die physically, we're going to be separated from our bodies. But when we die spiritually, we're separated from God. Because of our sin, and we've all sinned, our destiny is death. Separation from an eternal loving God. But here's the beauty. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's demonstration of his love, that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to become sin for us. Are you willing to repent, which means to turn back to God, stop walking away from God, stop living life according to your plan, and walk towards God? Are you willing to give your life to him, acknowledge that he is Lord, and believe that in your heart? Well, the Bible says if you do that, you will be saved. And the minute you do that, your eternity is sealed. You're justified, and justified means the penalty of your sins is paid for once and for all. No one can ever take you away from God's hand. And just like Mary, the moment that she saw Jesus, just like that thief on the cross who looked at Jesus and said, I believe you are Lord, take me today. With you. And Jesus looked right back at him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your background. Jesus wants to meet you where you're at. Are you ready and willing to meet him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you for all those who have given up their time and given their talents to make things like the mine happen and re-happen. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for each and every person that was here Tuesday night, for each and every person that's listening online. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who may be still running. And I pray that maybe today is the day that they turn towards you. And we thank you for the promise that you will meet them right where they're at if they will just stay there. And Heavenly Father, I pray that for those who don't know you, that they will turn their life over to you. Realize that they can no longer do it themselves. That they will cast their sin upon you and ask you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. Heavenly Father, I I pray and I thank you so much for the opportunity that this church gives us. We thank you for the opportunity that this country gives us to be able to proclaim the message. And we continually pray for the believers out there that they will not just believe that, like John did, but at some point they will make it a burden in their lives to go and proclaim the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. And that he has a plan for each and every person that if they will just turn to him, they will be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you again for the, those who are listening online that are part of the military. We thank you. Protect them. Give them courage and bring them back home safely. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.